Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God alone. Lord, we come to you today. We sit together as a group of people gathered here just for the purpose of you, to lift up our lives and to lift up this time. Lord, we ask that you speak through Jim today. May his words be your words. And may we leave here today with changed lives, that we know you just a little bit more, and that we can be lights for those that don't know you. Lord, we lift up this time for you, and it's in your Son's name, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Now let's go ahead and welcome Jim Dennison to the stage. Michael, thank you so much. What an honor it is to get to be in worship with you today. Already in the 9 o'clock service, I felt I met God. As I walked from the parking lot up to the campus, I was telling Ron, I could just sense there's an excitement, there's a buzz, there's an electricity. When you're in a different church every week, you can usually tell by the time you make it to the building how it's going to go that day. And it was just so obvious to me earlier today that the Holy Spirit is at work here. He is moving in your lives. He's moving in your church. He is doing some absolutely amazing things. And I am honored just to be part of this. I would invite you to open a Bible, please, to John chapter 20. I've been invited to spend some time with you this week and next, looking at the doubts, the questions, the issues, the struggles that all of us have with the intellectual dimension of Christian faith. And in order for us to get to there, I need us to know my favorite disciple in all the New Testament. You know him perhaps, unfortunately, as Doubting Thomas. I'm going to suggest there's another way to look at the story. The text is found in John chapter 20. I'd like you to begin reading with me. I have the English Standard Version today in John 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my sight. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Pray with me. Father, I pray that the same Spirit who inspired those words would speak them into our hearts and lives today. I pray, Father God, that you would be the one who would communicate truth this morning. That you would take away any word I've prepared unless it's yours. And you would add any word that is yours. And that, Father, you would be the one who would speak to us and compel us and call us and encourage us. And give us that practical word that is your revelation for us right now. I pray that for me and for us. Come and bless us. And use this time. Anoint this time. I pray. I submit it to you. I surrender it to you. Myself and us together. In Jesus' name. Amen. I need to begin today with a quiz, if I might. I know it's Sunday morning. Some of you just got up. I, I understand. But I need to do a little quiz together. Please, if you would, pick a number in your mind between 1 and 10. Now, if that's hard, this isn't going to go well. All right? Pick a number between 1 and 10. You got a number? All right. Now I need you to double it. Okay. So far, so good. Here's the hard part. Now add 8. Count on your toes if you need to. All right. Okay, so far. Now please divide that number in half. 
Okay. And last, subtract your original number. Okay, so you took a number, you doubled it, add eight, divide in half, subtract the original number. Okay, now that's your final number. Now I need you to turn that number into a letter. If your number is one, your letter is A. If your number is two, your letter is B. Okay, need you to get a letter. You got a letter? Now please think of a country that starts with that letter. You're almost done. Okay. Now please think of an animal that starts with the second letter of the country. And finally, please think of a color usually associated with that animal. The problem is there are no gray elephants in Denmark. Is that weird or what? Some of you are staring at me right now. How do they do that? Well, here's how that works. If you do the numbers what we did, you have to end up at four. doesn't matter where you start. Take any number, double it, add eight, divide in half, subtract the original, you end up at four. So you've got to be a D, got to get to D. So nearly everybody thinks of Denmark and then elephants and then gray. Every now and then we get an owl in the Dominican Republic, but those people probably aren't Christians. You know, it's probably a test of spirituality or something. And so what was a mystery bothered you until you understood the mystery. That's the way the Christian life has been for me. My father was a Methodist Sunday school teacher growing up in Kingman, a little town in Kansas. When the Second World War came along, my dad enlisted in the Army. They made him a radio operator on the island of Bougainville in the South Pacific. Japanese-occupied island. The Allies carved out an area on it so that my dad could operate a radio relay station. There were about 300 men placed there with him. About six months into their deployment, the Japanese shells knocked out the radio and killed most of the men there. When the Allies lost radio contact with them, they assumed they had all been killed, and they were abandoned. Two and a half years later, three years total, the Allies were making their way through the South Pacific on the march toward Japan, pushing out the Japanese soldiers before them. They came to Bougainville, Japanese-occupied island. They found 17 allies still alive. My father, one of them. One of the 17 was a painter. He made 17 oil paintings of Bougainville. Gave one to each of the survivors. Last May, a year ago May, we were moving houses and moving some stuff out of the attic, and I was having to repack a box that had, old cardboard box that had gotten really old and decayed over the years, and I found a painting I'd never seen before, and I asked my mom what it was, and she told me it was that painting, my father's painting of Bougainville. I have it hanging in my study at home over my computer. After that experience, my father never went to church again. And so I grew up in a loving, wonderful, moral home, but we had no spiritual life at all. My dad could never get past it. His issue was, if there is a God, why is there war? Dad had his first heart attack when I was two. He died of a heart attack when I was a senior in college. My great tragedy is that my father never met my sons. He would have been a wonderful grandfather. He had a skin fungus that he incurred on the island of Bougainville that bothered him the rest of his life. But once or twice he would talk about spiritual things. He would say, if you've seen your, your friends blown up in foxholes, then we could talk. 
And so I grew up without any kind of spiritual life at all. Wonderful, loving, moral, supportive home, but we had no church. We had no interest in church whatsoever. I didn't go to church any more than most of you have been to a Buddhist temple or a Muslim mosque. I was 15 years old, happened to be a Baptist church in southwest Houston where I was living. College Park Baptist Church started what they called a bus ministry. They don't do that much anymore. It's probably illegal for all I know. But back in the day, some of you remember bus ministries? They find an old school bus, paint the name of the church on the side, go around knocking on doors, trying to find kids that would ride the bus to church. Well, so it was in August of 1973 that Julian Unger and Tony McGrady knocked on my apartment door, inviting my younger brother and me to ride the bus to church. We did not want to go on the bus to church. Dad happened by, overheard the conversation, thought we ought to have a little religious background, told the men he would put us on the bus the next day. So Sunday morning, Mom gets us out of bed early. We weren't happy about that. She had found clip-on ties someplace, wide as my chest. She made us wear the clip-on ties. I carried the big family Bible like you have on your coffee table. Well, that's what I carried with me to church. Trust me, you don't stand out at all when you're 15 years old with a clip-on paisley tie and a big white family Bible. It was not a good experience. I'd never heard an organ except at a Houston Astros baseball game. They sang there was a balm in Gilead, and I didn't know what a balm was or where Gilead was, you know. pastor yelled and pounded on the pulpit, and I knew he was mad about something. I just hoped it wasn't me. I didn't know what it was. Had never had that experience before. Came home, took off the tie, put back the Bible. I had been to church. But they kept reaching out to my brother Mark and me, kept inviting us to things. Had a lot of friends in the youth group. Did some more stuff with them. Began to see something in them I didn't have in me. September 9th, 1973, after my 10th grade Sunday school class had ended, I asked my Sunday school teacher, who happened to be the pastor's wife, how I could have what they had. And she led me to pray a salvation prayer. She led me to faith in Christ. About six months later, my brother became a Christian. About a year after that, Dad let us get baptized together. Mark's pastor of First Baptist Church in Gainesville, these days up on the Oklahoma border, you know, on the edge of the foreign missions territory up there, you know. Have to speak slowly up there, use small words, all of that. And I'm here having worship with you today. Made all the Oklahoma people mad just now, didn't we? Well, when all of that happened, I thought my questions would go away. I thought my doubts and struggles would just miraculously disappear. Because I had all my dad's questions. If there's a God, why is there war? By 10th grade, I learned enough to know there were other religions. And I would raise my hand in 10th grade Sunday school. You can picture this. A, a new kid on the block in 10th grade Sunday school raising his hand and asking, how do we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Or how do we know the Bible's really true? Or I would ask science and faith questions, you know, a little bit about creation and evolution, 10th grade type stuff. I found out real fast you're not supposed to do that in 10th grade Sunday school, at least not where I was. And so I just assumed there was something wrong with my faith that I seemed to have doubts and questions no one else had. I really questioned whether I was a Christian or not. My pastor and I talked about it two or three times. We had an invitation in our church. and I actually came down during the invitation at least once that I remember to talk to the pastor to ask if he was sure I was a Christian because I had doubts and questions and struggles that no one else seemed to have. Well, long story short, I wound up with the call to ministry, which was certainly nothing I had ever imagined would happen to me. I wanted to be a professional tennis player or trumpet player. That was back when reality didn't matter very much. And we played tennis with wooden rackets. Can y'all, some of you can't believe they actually used to play tennis with wooden rackets. There used to be a guy named Bjorn Borg. Anybody remember? All five of you. Thank you for that hand in the back. I see that hand. Boy, we're old. That was right after the earth cooled and dinosaurs roaming the earth. 
wound up with a call to ministry. Second year in seminary, Southwestern Seminary, took a philosophy class because it was required. And for the first time, someone let me ask my questions. Wound up doing a doctorate in that, teaching five years at Southwestern, taught on three other faculties, written five books, and it's all been about the questions, my father's questions, my questions, the questions people ask, the doubts, the issues. Twenty-five years as a pastor, I've discovered I'm not the only person that has questions about God. I've talked to lots of folks over the years who had issues that were keeping them from becoming Christians. I remember a man in Midland that was certain that he couldn't be a Christian because the way he understood science and the way he understood Genesis just didn't add up. So he thought he just couldn't be a believer. I've met lots of people like that over the years. Then I've met people who are Christians, but they have doubts and questions that are keeping them from growing in their faith. Why pray to a God who already knows what you're going to ask and presumably would do the right thing? What about evil and suffering if God's all-powerful and all-loving? We'll talk about that next week. Issues that keep us from growing in our faith. And then over the years, I've learned that there are Christians who have doubts and issues that keep them from sharing their faith. They're okay with God themselves, but they're afraid someone's going to ask them a question they can't answer. Or somebody's going to have an issue that is going to embarrass them or worse, going to make them hurt the person spiritually. They kind of feel like someone trying to offer medical advice that hasn't been a medical school. And they're hindered in their ministry. I think I've described most of the people I've met over the years in those three categories. I think I'm describing most of you. I think most of you are either somebody who isn't yet a Christian. We're so glad you're here today. You're so welcome to be here today. But you're not yet a believer, and there are doubts and questions and issues that are separating you from that decision. Or you've trusted Christ. You had your September 9, 1973, and you've given your life to Jesus. But you've got some doubts and issues. God has disappointed you. God hasn't answered prayer the way you expected He would. It hasn't all added up yet. There are some things that are struggles for you in your spiritual life. Or you've got some things that are making it hard for you to be as effective in your witness and ministry as you want to be because there just are some questions and issues. I, I think that's most of us. Well, I'd like you to meet the first one of us. The guy whose story is in the Bible, not for his sake, but for our sake. He knew what happened. The Holy Spirit inspired John to make certain the story got in the text because it's our story too. It's in John chapter 20. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has appeared to his disciples, but Thomas isn't there. Thomas missed church. As I said in the first service with Ron sitting right over here, your pastor would very much like me to point out the fact that bad things happen when you skip church. See what happens when you miss church. All right? I'm supposed to tell you that, I think. I think that's the one thing I'm supposed to make sure I tell you today. All right, Thomas isn't there. His enemies, his critics say that maybe he was afraid of the authorities. I don't think that's the case for reasons I'll explain in a second. Some think perhaps he was so grief-stricken he just couldn't be there. After my dad died when I was in college, I couldn't go to church for three weeks. I remember the first Sunday after dad died, I made it all the way to College Park Baptist Church. I walked up to the door and I just couldn't go in. Some of you know what that's like. Maybe Thomas just had the flu. Maybe the swine flu was going around back in those days or something. For whatever reason, he wasn't there. So he missed the risen Jesus. Jesus appears to the disciples, but not to Thomas. Now it's the next week. It's the next Sunday, and they're having worship together, together again. And Thomas is there this time. And the disciples tell him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas says, 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Four personal pronouns. I will never believe. No second-hand faith for Thomas. And I say good for him. No second-hand knowledge of Jesus for him. Now, you can call him Doubting Thomas if you want to. But let me give you a little more of his story. Would you turn back to John chapter 11, please, very quickly? I'd like to show you the first time Thomas gets quoted in the Bible. Thomas makes three statements that are recorded in Holy Scripture. He appears in all the Gospels in the list of disciples, but the entirety of his quoted statements are in the Gospel of John, and they're in three places. The first one's in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died. Jesus is going to make its way from Galilee to the north down to Bethany outside Jerusalem. Even though his enemies are waiting for him, they're lurking. The disciples are terrified that if Jesus goes back down that way, the authorities will arrest him and execute him, and perhaps the disciples with him. They're doing everything they can to talk Jesus out of this idea. But in verse 15, Jesus makes it clear, let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin. That's what the name Thomas means, is twin. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The first disciple willing to die for Jesus. I call that courageous, Thomas. Now turn over a couple pages to John chapter 14, if you would. You know this famous setting. John 14, beginning at verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. If I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to be with me. That where I am, there you may be as well. And Thomas, speaking for them all, asks, Lord, we do not where you're going, do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, this is one of those places where Greek actually is a little helpful. Sometimes we go to seminary to learn Greek just so we can try to be impressive. But every now and then it really does help. This is one of those places. When Thomas says, how can we know the way? There is an urgency in his question that doesn't really make it into English. There's an intensity to the issue. How can we know the way? How can we make certain that we're going where it is that you are going? It's the kind of urgency you would use if you were running in here saying, how can I find the hospital? My wife's about to give birth. Or is there a doctor in the house? My son has just collapsed. It'd be that kind of urgency. That's what's inside Thomas' question here. How can, it's not a skeptical question. It's a passionate question. It's an urgent question. It's passionate, Thomas. We've seen courageous Thomas. We've seen passionate Thomas. Now we get to that passage that some people call doubting Thomas. I think it's sincere Thomas. I think it's Thomas who wants a first-hand real relationship with Jesus. It's not good enough that others have met him. Thomas has to meet him for himself. And I say good for Thomas. I hope you're not living on second-hand faith today. I hope your faith today isn't dependent on what your Sunday school teachers just told you or will tell you or what you heard in a sermon or what you read in a book or what you saw on television. Paul chastised the Corinthians for second-hand faith. He wanted to give them meat, he said, but they can only take milk. Well, milk is digested meat. The cow digests the food and the calf drinks what the second-hand material becomes. That's the way it is for so many of us. We let someone else digest the Word. We let someone else be, do the hard work of Christian growth, and then we want to show up on Sunday or during the week or read a book or watch a show or listen to a, a podcast, and, and we want what they 
worked hard to get. We want secondhand faith, and that's just not enough. You can't live on milk. Thomas refuses to live on milk. He's asking the honest, genuine issues, doubts, questions that express the state of his heart. And so we should. Isaiah 118 says, come, let us reason together. The Hebrew actually says, come, let us argue it out. That's what God tells you today. Come, let us argue it out. Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The idea that you have to park your brain at the door when you come to worship God is heresy. Some of the greatest thinkers that have ever lived are Christian scholars. Some of the greatest philosophers, some of the greatest historians, some of the greatest scientists, some of the greatest intellectuals in all of human history are devout, born-again Christians. That's the way it is today. Some of the very men and women at the forefront of the scientific advances that are changing, revolutionizing our lives are sold-out, passionate followers of Jesus. You may know the name of Francis Collins, the head of the Genome Project, one of the three or four most foremost, best-known scientists on earth. Couldn't be a stronger follower of Jesus. You may know of Antony Flew, who was the best-known skeptic of the 20th century, who has recently become a theist and now a Christian. He's in his 90s. He gave his whole life to the defense of atheism. Now a follower of Jesus. Sir William Ramsey, a noted British scholar, set out to disprove the narratives of the book of Acts. And investigating the evidence, he became a Christian. You may know the name of Josh McDowell, a well-known apologist, who set out to disprove Christianity and in examining the evidence came to faith in Christ. Even Jesus on the cross could cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When my dad died, I went out to the backyard of our house in Houston and shook my fist at God. But he didn't shake his fist at me. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to struggle with the issues that are part of our fallen human lives. It's okay. The only bad question is the one you won't admit The right thing to do is to do what Thomas did. It's to get it out and look at it and examine it and and come to terms with whatever the speed bumps are, the roadblocks, whatever it is that's keeping you from taking the next step into an intimate, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to do across the weeks of this series. Ron asked me specifically today to look at the apologetic issue that has to do with the authority of Scripture. How do we know the story is true? How do we know the Bible's true? Next week, he wants me to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus and the issue of, of um, innocent suffering, evil and suffering. And then in weeks after that, he's going to be unpacking the rest of the tough issues, the hard questions that people ask about the faith. As you do that, as you walk through the series, understand that your question's in there. Your issues are there. And God put together this series for your sake to draw you into a more intimate, personal relationship with him. Of these apologetic issues, apologia is the Greek word that means to make a defense. Apologetics are the part of theology that seeks to defend the Christian faith. All of this is in obedience to 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Be ready always to give an answer for the hope you have. You're commanded to be ready today to give an answer for the hope that you have. Well, one of the first questions folk tend to ask has to do with the question of biblical authority. How do you know the Bible's true? That was my question. How do you know this is really so? 
I used to be a graphic artist in a previous life. My boss said he couldn't be a Christian because he did not believe the Bible we have could be what they wrote. How do you know, he said? How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know you can trust those words? The Bible says it's the Word of God, but the Quran claims to be the revelation of God. The angel Gabriel revealing the Word of God to the prophet Muhammad beginning in 610 A.D. in Muhammad's hometown of Mecca. That's what the Quran claims. That's what Muslims believe. The Book of Mormon claims to be translated from golden tablets revealed to Joseph Smith. The Bhagavad Gita claims to be what we would think of as a kind of revelation for the Hindu. How do we know? Well, at that point, I really need about three weeks in an apologetics class with you. Then I need to give you a test at the end of the time, and Ron won't let me do that. And I don't get three weeks. I only get about 30 minutes today in total. So let me take you through an outline of the issues. Next week, Jeff and Billy are going to bring some books, and I've written a book on biblical authority, and you're welcome to that. And there's a lot of resource besides that, of course, that's available to you. But here's the outline. All right, let me just give you the overview very quickly. You can jot these down if you want to. There, you can unpack this at your leisure. There are four questions you ask of any ancient book. If you want to know if you can trust an ancient book, maybe someone discovered a new manuscript of Shakespeare, or maybe you're dealing with Caesar's Gallic Wars or a writing of Plato or Aristotle. You're talking about something that came into existence prior to the printing press, back when stuff was copied by hand. What you're really talking about is the era before about 300 A.D. Around the 3rd or 4th century after Christ, a thing called parchment was developed. That's writing on sheepskin or goatskin. That's permanent stuff. So we have a good number of books that were written on parchment because those don't go away. Those don't just over time dissolve and disintegrate. Prior to parchment, people wrote on clay, what's called ostracon, but it's hard to write a book on clay. Can you imagine carrying around a phone book written on clay tablets, you know? And so most people wrote on what was known as papyrus. We get the word paper from that, papyrus. Papyrus is a reed. It grows along the Nile River. You cut it into strips, kind of weave them together, glue it together, leave it out to dry. That's the paper of the ancient world. Papyrus doesn't stand up over time. It just disintegrates over time. That's just the way papyrus is. You ever leave a newspaper out in the sun for a week or two? You go on family vacation, forgot to stop. Oh, I forgot. Most of you don't take the paper. There was a day when there was a thing called the newspaper, and it came to your house. Someone threw it out in your front yard, and if you forgot to tell them to not do that or tell a neighbor to pick it up, it would sit out there for a week or two, and you'd get back, and it'd be all yellowed and withered. Well, that's what would happen to papyrus. As a result, we do not have the original on papyrus writings of any book before about 300 A.D. Just don't have them. We do not have the original writings of Plato or Aristotle or Tacitus or Suetonius or Marabarsarapian or Pliny or Julius Caesar. We don't have anything written before about 300 A.D. in its entirety on papyrus because papyrus just doesn't stand up over time. We therefore do not have what's called the original manuscripts or the autographs of the books of the Old and New Testament. So the question is, How do we know if what we have looks like what they wrote? How do we know about the manuscripts, whether they were transmitted accurately? For Caesar's Gallic Wars, written between 58 and 50 B.C., we have nine ancient copies. The oldest copies we have were made 900 years after Caesar. You got nine copies, 900-year gap. Okay? 
maybe you've heard of Tacitus. He was the best Roman historian, best known first century Roman historian. He wrote 14 books of history. We only have four and a half of them. And the oldest copy of the writings of Tacitus we have is 900 years after what Tacitus wrote. I'm sure you've heard of Aristotle. We only have five ancient copies of any work of Aristotle. Metaphysics, Nicomachean Ethics, anything Aristotle wrote. The gap between what he wrote and what we have is 1,400 years. And yet I don't know anybody saying we can't trust the writings of Aristotle or we can't trust Julius Caesar or we can't trust Tacitus. That's the gap and that's the number of ancient copies. For the Greek New Testament, we have 5,000 ancient copies and 10,000 in other ancient languages. The oldest complete New Testaments we have are at the very beginning of parchment, 380. When parchment was first developed, the oldest book you can possibly have is the New Testament. Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, around 380. We have papyrus fragments that go back to 30 years after the New Testament. Textual scholars have compared all of this data. They have determined that the New Testament we have today is 99.2% the original. The 0.8% about which any question remains affects not one matter of doctrine, faith, or practice. Not one. That's that place where you're reading along and by a word there'll be a little letter and down in the footnote it'll say or and it'll give you another word. That's what you've got. You've got a place where it could be this word, could be that word, based on the manuscripts. It affects not one matter of doctrine, faith, or practice. The simple fact is that the New Testament and the Old Testament we have today are the best attested ancient documents in history. In history. So the first question about biblical apologetics. How do you know you can trust the Bible? Can you trust the text? Absolutely, you can trust the text. Second question has to do with archaeological evidence. Does archaeology confirm or does archaeology disprove the text? Nelson Gluck, a well-known Jewish archaeologist, says not a single archaeological discovery contradicts the Bible. Not a single one. Now compare that to the Book of Mormon. Where, for instance, I don't mean to be unhappy with Mormons, but just to give you a comparison. Archaeologists have yet to discover a single evidence for a single geographical or historical reference found uniquely in the Book of Mormon. If something is mentioned or described only in the Book of Mormon and no place else, we have yet to find a single shred of scientific evidence that that place ever existed. Not one. An enormous archaeological contradiction to the text. None of that with the Bible. Third question has to do with internal consistency. Do the books add up? Again, that'd be about a week-long conversation. The answer is yes, the books add up. Every now and then someone will say to me, well, the Bible's filled with contradiction. To which I ask, okay, well, show me one. Hasn't happened yet. The fourth question you ask about an ancient text has to do with fulfilled prophecy. If it makes predictions, did they come to pass? So you want to know, is the text transmitted accurately? You want to know, does archaeology support? You want to know, is it internally consistent? And then fourth, you want to know about fulfilled prophecy. There were at least 48 predictions made in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. At least 48 of them. 
Some years ago, a mathematician named Peter Stoner calculated the eight of them that would be the most difficult for someone to fulfill. For instance, it was predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Well, how could Jesus arrange his own birth? I didn't choose to be born in Houston. You didn't choose to be born wherever you were born. Jesus is the only baby that chose his parents, the only baby that chose the place of his birth. I've been there. I've been in the cave. I would never choose to be born in a feed trough in that cave, I can tell you that. If he'd be born in that cave, he'll be born again in your heart and mind. I think that's the point he was making. Well, he picked the eight of those that Jesus could never have arranged himself. He determined the odds of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies. Those odds are one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's a one followed by seventeen zeros. Let me give you a picture for that. Let's say you invented the Internet. And you invented the personal computer and you invented the iPhone. And now you have so much money that you can fill the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. We all want you to do that very much. We will follow behind with a wheelbarrow and be very happy to do that. So you have enough money that you can fill the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. That's 10 to the 17th power. Then you put a little red dot on one of those silver dollars and you throw it someplace in the state of Texas. Maybe over in East Texas, around Longview, where my wife's parents live, or maybe out in Midland, where we used to be. Someplace in the state of Texas. Throw one silver dollar with a little red dot on it. Blindfold me, lead me around all day. At the end of the day, I'm going to bend down and pick up a silver dollar. The odds I will pick up the silver dollar in the state of Texas that you mark are the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 48 prophecies he fulfilled. The odds of his fulfilling all 48 is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That is a number larger than the number of electrons in the universe. Bottom line, you can trust the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. That's an example of apologetics. That's one of the areas, one of the questions in apologetics. We'll look at some more next week, and then your pastor will continue on the series beyond that. But before we're done, I need to show you how apologetics ends, how the story turns out. You can examine the intellectual issues of the faith, and you should. But then you've got to travel 18 inches. You've got to take the journey from the head to the heart. Here's how it works for Thomas. The next week, Jesus appears among them again. He doesn't chastise Thomas, does he? He doesn't shake his finger and say, Thomas, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be having these questions. He specifically addresses the very issues Thomas raises. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my sight. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The first person in all of human history to say to the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. Faith is a relationship. All relation, I have to say this twice. All relationship requires a commitment which transcends the evidence and becomes self-validating. All relationship requires a commitment which transcends the evidence and becomes self-validating. Say you're a graduating high school senior about to go to a college and you're going to choose a place to go. 
If you have to have proof that that's the right college, you could never go there. Examine the evidence, of course. But then you take a step. You make a commitment that transcends the evidence. And once you're there, it becomes self-validating. Think about a job that you took recently or a long time ago. If you had to have proof that was the right job for you, you could never have taken the job. You examine the evidence, but then you step beyond the evidence into a relationship. If you're waiting until you can prove this is the right church for you, you can't join this church or any other church because you can't prove that until you experience it. If Janet waited for proof she should marry me, she should never have married me. Twenty-nine years later, she's probably still wondering why she did that. If we had to prove we'd be good parents, we would never have become parents. All relationship requires a commitment which transcends the evidence and becomes self-validating. That's how it is with Jesus. Examine the evidence, but then take a step beyond the evidence into an intimate, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus. Say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. I've come today to ask you to do that. In fact, more specifically, I've come today to invite you to join the Fifth Great Awakening. There have been four Great Awakenings in American history. A Great Awakening is a revival, a movement of the Holy Spirit, which transforms communities and countries. The four Great Awakenings were 1734, 1792, 1858, 1904, and 5. Each of them of historic, transforming significance. If we had more time, we could unpack those. I could tell you stories about all of those. I've been a student of awakenings for about 20 years. I've been praying for awakening for America for about 20 years. The fourth great awakening, quick example, started in the nation of Wales. So many coal miners became Christians and stopped using obscene language that the coal mine shut down for a time because the mules could no longer understand their directions. Isn't that great? In Wales, all the police groups had to disband. There was no one to arrest. They made themselves into barbershop quartets and sang in churches. Isn't that cool? There's a fifth great awakening happening today. 82,000 people are coming to Christ every single day around the world. More people are choosing to follow Jesus every day than at any time in all of Christian history. More Muslims are becoming Christians than at any time in Muslim history. Thousands of Muslims are having visions and dreams of Jesus all over the world. Supernatural evangelism, just like you read about in the book of Acts. Go home and Google Muslim dreams of Jesus or Muslim visions of Jesus. I think you'll be astounded at what you see. More Jews are becoming Christians than at any time in all of Christian history. There's a movement that apparently started in South Korea after the Korean War. Six of the ten largest churches on earth are in South Korea. The largest of them, Yoido Full Gospel Church, started with seven, now has more than a million members. It's a worship movement in Australia around Hillsong. It's a charismatic Pentecostal movement in Central and South America. I was in Sao Paulo a year ago. I was astonished at what's happening in the churches of Brazil today. It's a tribal movement in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a movement in the underground church in China. Some people think 100,000 are coming to Christ every day in the underground church in China alone. There's a fifth great awakening happening today everywhere except Europe and North America. Of the 82,000 that are coming to Christ every day, only 6,000 are in Europe and North America combined. Because here we separate Sunday and Monday and religion in the real world and spiritual and secular 
And we come to church so we can check the box and we have religion as a part of our lives. And we made a decision some time ago to ask Jesus to be our Lord so we could go to heaven. But now he's just kind of a part of our lives and religion's kind of a hobby. And what you're doing this morning is just kind of what you do with your discretionary time. But this isn't the real world. And Jesus is just kind of part of who we are. Wherever in the world people are saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The fifth great awakening is coming. Philip Yancey says, God goes where he's wanted. Let me invite you to join the fifth great awakening today. Gypsy Smith, a great evangelist, was asked how revival starts. He said, take a chalk, piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. Pray till everything inside the circle is right with God. And revival will begin. I want to challenge you to do that this afternoon. Take some time. Get alone with God today. Take a piece of spiritual chalk, as it were. Draw a circle around yourself. Pray till everything inside that circle is right with God. Ask God to show you what it would mean for you to say, My Lord and my God. Ask God to show you what your next step is to a more intimate, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus. And if there are doubts and questions and issues, get them out. Write them down. Address them. Deal with them. Take your step. Join the fifth grade awakening. Do you think God wants to do here in Faramal what God's doing in Korea? Do you think God wants to do in America what God is doing all over the underground church in China? God goes where He's wanted. God sent me today to invite you to say with Thomas, in your own way, my Lord and my God. To help you do that, let me close with my favorite declaration of faith. I pray this quite often. It has meant so very much to me. It was given to me years ago when Jeff and I were serving in Atlanta. It's called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. When he and I were serving a church in Atlanta, there was a man there, head of a global missions organization. This had been given to him. It was found in the diary of a young pastor in Zimbabwe martyred for his faith. Since that time, it's had a lot of forms and versions, and it's been attributed. A number of people have taken credit for it. But the version I have was found in the journal of that young pastor who died for Jesus. You can find it on the Internet, Fellowship of the Unashamed. It goes like this. I am part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die's been cast, the decision's been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, shut up, slow down, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, promotions, plaudits, or praise. I don't have to be right first, tops regarded, praised or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my goal is heaven, my way is, is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of suffering, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of compromise, pander in the pools of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I belong to Jesus. I will not give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I preached, I prayed up, stayed up, and stored up for the cause of Christ. I belong to Him. 
I must preach till all know, give till I drop, and work till he comes. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I pray for the fifth grade awakening to come right here. I pray for Rock Point Church to decide in these days and these weeks that these, my sisters and brothers, want more of you than they've ever known before. Want a more personal, intimate, passionate relationship with you than they've ever had. Father, in the urgency of these days, with all the crises that are around us, Lord, I believe that you're using the crisis of these days to draw us to yourself. God, I believe that you are using the financial crisis to turn our nation to yourself. You are using the threat of radical Islam to show us the urgency of trusting you and serving you in these days. God, I believe you are about a great and mighty work in the world. We ask that it be here and with us. Show us what it means, each of us, to say, My Lord and my God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.